0: Hey, it's Lou, and it's good to be back for Series 7 with Shade Shorts, themed and bite-sized conversations with black and diasporic art practitioners. In this series, I'll be in conversation with artists and curators working in film. And today, my guest is film curator and archivist, June Giovanni. We'll be talking about her new exhibition, showcasing the June Giovanni Pan-African Cinema Archive, currently on show at Raven Row in London until June the 4th. June's archive holds a unique collection of artefacts and archival material which has at its core the interest of Pan-African cinema and its relationship with Black British cinema and culture. The exhibition reveals histories and ideas in african and african diasporic film june has been collating and sharing this material since the 80s a key figure in the black british independent cinema movement she was involved in the landmark third eye festival with the glc in london in 1983 later establishing the African-Caribbean Film Unit at the BFI in 92. June's archive holds more than 10,000 items connecting African film with the film cultures of the diaspora communities in the Americas, the Caribbean and Europe. And June and I met this week to discuss her early connection with film as a child, to her four decades of work as a curator and archivist. Okay, let's go to the conversation. Enjoy. Enjoy.
1: arriving into a cold grey london from a bright and sunny guyana um, and you know living um with my mom um who was here who had been invited to come and uh, uh work as a nurse she was a red cross nurse back in guyana um but she came here uh was invited to come here to work as a nurse in the uh, then NHS. And um, she was based at uh, Whittington Hospital. Hmm. So we were living in close to Archway between Archway and Holloway. Hmm. And you know, it was very modest, one room, me and her, but it was great. It was great to be with her. Hmm. Um, But um, the challenges were, came thick and fast in terms of (laughs) how people experience you um, and the most um, traumatic, I think, or the most difficult to deal with was at my first school. Um, I was taken to a junior school and they put me, because I was age seven at the time. This was in the mid 1950s. Mm-hmm. And they put me in a uh, in a, a class of younger children, age five, I was age seven, and I was asked to write my name, which I did with a with a flourish, of joined up writing, and I always remember the the look on the um, the teacher's face. She sort of looked deep into my eyes, looked into my face as if to to say, "Who is this person? Where she come from?" And then she made me write in block capitals. (laughs) So um, that was, um, it was curious. I couldn't understand what was going on. And uh, uh, I told my mom and she went up, she had to go up to the schools, to the school twice before they put me up with, into my age group. Mm -hmm. And even then I was still, advance because the thing is at the time we were going to school from the age of three in in guyana at that time so i had you know i knew what i was i was could write i could write properly i could write with joined up writing and um uh, and i could read well and so but i it always struck me as something that that look on that teacher's face is like who is this person, and where has she come from, and what and then she goes on to you know to um not believe that i I was able to to write and that I'd come from somewhere where you know where people are educated mm. and have something to contribute to life and to the world mm. and and that has always been something that has not just that one occasion, there've been other occasions. Uh, in my secondary school, I had a um, person who was a, um, um, was was uh, giving us um, PE. And because I was one of the very few black people in her class, she started to treat me like a little toy. She'd pick me up and and, and uh, walk around and, and put me into to different um, places and different positions. Things like that were really, really strange. And it really sort of um, made me think, what is it? Who is it that, that they think I am and why? Um, because I was coming here thinking, oh, this will be great. It's a new country, it's a new place new people. I was very open to them, but they were sort of um, very narrow, <laughs> I would say, in terms of who they thought I was and, and what would be. And that those aspects of life in the UK have stuck with me throughout my childhood and also into my education and um so, you know, by the time I was in my teens and thinking of studying, so, um, you know, there were so many aspects of life in the UK that, that sort of um, were were shocked, shocked to me. I was surprised by people's ignorance of who black people are, hmm. what we are able to achieve, what we are able to contribute. And... Um, and it has stuck with me um, throughout my, my education, but also uh, has inspired what I wanted to do when I discovered um, different um, um, medium for, uh, for communicating and making uh, an impact, sharing ideas. And so that was part of, of uh, my ambition when I was coming towards uh um you know what I wanted to do and what I had to contribute mm.
0: and how did film um, how how did you first start this relationship with film that kind of offered some kind of respite to that sort of sense of disconnection that you were feeling here um um initially it was television
1: i suppose but television was was great <laughs> at, at the time. Uh, I found it great because it was a whole new experience, television. Um, and, but some of that also um, uh, re-emphasized some of the alienation that I'd been feeling. But at the same time, it offered so much and opened up so much scope for seeing and understanding the world and uh, engaging with with um, uh, lives that you you don't know about and parts of the world that you don't know about that it was it was exciting it was great um, film came uh, also in my childhood but a little bit later in my childhood um, before before um, Teenage, but we used to go. We used to have. We lived in Hackney, and we used to have a um, children's Saturday morning cinema at uh, the Odeon, close to um, dawson Junction. And uh, uh, yeah, I started going to 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 see films there at uh, on a Saturday morning. Saturday morning children's club. But I think television had much more impact because it was more immediate, and also it was um, something that I had a lot more access to. But film on the big screen also had an impact because uh, of of the magic of it. You know, the way the way um, you know you could actually. It could actually uh, 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 embrace you and completely absorb you. Uh, uh, the big screen, the big screen was 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 fantastic, and um, yeah, so that was interesting. But both of these media media were were things that I knew had an impact and could be used to to do what I wanted to do and. I hadn't thought of a a career in film, Uh, definitely, hadn't thought about it particularly. That came a bit later as I began to learn about the world, as I went through my secondary education, as I went towards my degrees. Um, That's when you you began to realize that the communication power of film and of uh the moving image which i thought was very effective in uh and would be very effective both in terms of um presenting to the world who we are but also learning about um uh, learning about the world from others um that was that was uh very important mm-hmm.
0: and We're going to explore um, what the audience can find when they visit your exhibition at Raven Rose, and we will go on to that in a moment. But I'm really interested in this uh, clear line from your early engagement in film as a viewer to your working life as a curator. But something about that journey also developed into a further interest in collecting. And I wonder what nurtured this instinct of yours as you were sort of moving through your career.
1: What that, that line was, was very much determined by the medium by which you could engage with the moving image and, uh, and how that, and why that led to collecting has mm. as much to do with the fact that um, this was the, the analog age It was the pre-digital age. And so both in terms of how you were um, experiencing the moving image, but also how it was being shared, how it was being used, and to what extent the moving image might be something that might challenge a lot of the ignorance that, that, um, that was around at at that time and how maybe this was a powerful medium that could actually be used in a particular way to express what I think needs to be expressed that wasn't expressed or that, um, you know, wasn't known about sufficiently. I was always involved in, in, in black culture because, and I always felt that people should know about it because it would help them understand who, who we are and what we're able to contribute or have contributed to humanity. Mm-hmm. The politics and also the cultural dimension of that were were, were really important, important things and I just don't think that they were valued enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, uh, as I began to study and my studies were... To do with um, uh, both culture, but also history, and mainly social sciences, I suppose initially, but also uh, media going forward, and those those feelings that I had from a child were still the things that were were um, uh, directing me towards. what was interesting or might be interesting to know and to share. So, and as a person, as a black person, a person of African and Pan-African identity, I was very glad to be able to um, explore that in every way possible. I used to go to things like, um, to places like the Commonwealth Institute. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Growing up. Um, uh, it's the sort of place, that, an institution that a lot of um, uh, people from the African diaspora would go to. The Commonwealth Institute was mm-hmm. was quite important, mm-hmm. and in fact, one of my colleagues and one of the people who was to later encourage me and uh, and uh, and uh, support what I was doing, one of the people that I regarded highly was Jim Pines. Yes. who had been working, who did work in, at the Commonwealth Institute mm-hmm. um, in the 70s, uh, late 70s, maybe early 80s. And um, I was part of an organisation of uh, Black women called Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, OAD, And um, we used to meet, we used to share, and people with different um, backgrounds, uh, uh, it was intellectual. It was cultural. It was very powerful, and this brought brought us all together. One of the people that I met at OAD um, was was Paminda Veer. and she was e- eventually she she uh, was working at the British at the uh, GLC, the Greater London Council, uh, running the arts office within the ethnic minorities. A unit, and she was doing doing uh, some some quite strategic work there, and I was invited to to work with her um, uh, in the development of uh, uh, a festival that was to be taking place in uh, in the beginning of the eighties. Yeah. It was called Third Third Eye Festival of Third World Cinema. I mean, I spoke. I spoke French, that meant that I could work in certain spheres and uh, and it took me in the direction of certain types of African cinema. So Francophone African cinema was very much to the forefront uh, in terms of African cinema at that time. And it also brought me into a sphere of working with many others who were also engaged um, both culturally and uh, and uh, um, in terms of their our our passion for uh, Pan-African cinema and Pan-African culture, mm. the idea of Pan-Africanism, understanding it and um, making sure that it was valued and it was seen. Um, and at the time, I mean, of course, Paminda Veer was... Of Indian origin, but this was a time when the term "black" was a comprehensive term for a number of us within uh, the, in this society who were um, challenging what we saw as as racial ignorance and, and and racism. But also, we did engage very much with uh, people people here in the UK who also shared our vision and our passion to understand and to know those cultures. And cinema was an important part of that. Mm. And this particular festival brought together filmmakers from uh, across um, the, the diaspora because it was based around third cinema, the ideas and the concept of third cinema. It also brought uh, Latin American filmmakers, African-American, African, African American, the whole sphere of, of, uh, um, of the Pan-African idea and its links to other uh, cinemas uh, was an opportunity that, that that festival afforded. And so you will find a lot of elements in relation to that within the archive. As I said, this was a time of that was pre-digital. Mm-hmm. So we what you collected and what you used and what you were given, both by filmmakers, but also by others, and what was produced for publicity, everything was very physical. It was very physical, and um this is what you kept as you went through your career. Um, presenting films in different contexts, in different countries, um, and in different ways. Um, we were—I did skip a little bit. We were there was an organization, a small gathering of people who worked in in uh, in film and television, called um, the Black Media Workers Group, yes, uh, which uh, Paminda was part of the Phillips brothers, Mike and Trevor were part of that, Julian Henriquez, Diane Abbott. It was one of the groups that I discovered and became involved with. So it wasn't, it was uh, Owad who I mentioned, but it was also my involvement in this group, which uh, also was was quite formative in, uh, and I was so glad to know that such a group existed. I was also looking for work within media. I was admired by people who were already doing this within television. And I saw that uh, more easily as a way in um, because film was still something that had to be you had to operate through a very um, significant professional background to be able to get into that. And I was more interested in um, uh, what I had to say, what and what could reach the mass population more easily. Mm-hmm. But when I had the opportunity to work with a film festival, that expanded um, my horizons much wider. With the African Americans who came, and so, and the African filmmakers that I knew that I made contact with. And, of course, you know, I'm from a country called Guyana, which, mm-hmm. like Trinidad, where we grew up not only as African Caribbeans, but our experience of the population is that Indian people are part of our identity as well, yeah. Indian culture, and Amerindian culture. Mm-hmm. And so there was never a question of the the term black or the terms Pan-African or so being exclusive of of um you know people who also identified with with what what where we are in this society and what we're trying to do and how you actually um um how you actually regard the and value each other many many years later in the uh, mid to late 90s i started i was invited because I had this background and experience in in film and working with a number of film festivals, um, including you know Toronto, including Imash Carib in Martinique, uh, and of course in the UK working through the British Film Institute, and that came after I had worked with both Jim Pines and Paul Willerman, um, who had encouraged me to work with them for the um, third cinema conference and festival that was held in Edinburgh in 1986. And that all, just to give you a, a, a time logic to that, the Third Eye Film Festival that I worked with, with um, uh, Paminda and others, John Comfort. that was when I saw Palsi's film, uh, Rukas Neg, Black Shack Alley, which was showing at a cinema on King's Road. I knew that a lot of black people hadn't seen this film. It was Anne Palsy, the Martinican director, and her film Rukas Negri, uh Black Shack Alley, as it was called here in the UK. And one of the things that we were doing with Third, Third Eye was, um, well, a number of things, apart from the festival itself, and its conference. Uh, There was the following year, 1984, um, a conference at the National Film Theatre around Black British cinema. So that took place there. But at that time, we were also, um, we had also put together a program that would take um, film, Black film, African film, film from other parts of the world to a young and educational audience and the community response was fantastic I mean the queues around the buildings and things like that Mm -hmm. so there was there was definitely a need for that sort of those sort of initiatives at that time
0: and and some of this um huge collection of yours which I must say is uh, like a a 10,000 piece collection is on show currently at your Raven Row Mm
1: -hmm.
0: exhibition and I know that there will be screenings there are also accompanying talks as well what are some of the the key highlights for you? So we have all sorts of posters
1: um and we've tried to present as many as possible within within the the exhibition including um a few of our our small um, um, silk screen posters that um, were at that at the time of the 80s when I used to go to the Havana film festivals these are important they're silk screen posters and very often artists and people working within that sector might not get to see them if they are only if they've only um, uh, been able to um get a sense of them um on in a digital sense because seeing them uh, physically and close up uh, you know is quite important mm. um so we have some of those in our Caribbean section. another theme area is what we did um in the uh, sisterhood section of our archive so there is uh there are films um not only short films, but also things that we were involved in helping to make happen. Um, Karen Alexander invited me to do a, um, a, uh, an interview with the writer, Tony Cade Bambara. And you will see that um, um, time-coded interview with Tony Cade there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also another friend and colleague, Sindamani Bridgelau, again, <laughs> Guyanese, but um, Indian <laughs> and, and in, Indian Guyanese. She made uh, recorded the interview between um, Margaret Busby, the publisher, yeah. and uh, Toni Morrison. And right. it's quite important to have this sisterhood section because at the time, in the late 80s, in the early 90s, that, that, that agenda for women's um, involvement, women's um, uh, engagement, and women taking charge within various uh, areas was, was quite important. So I'm glad that we have this sisterhood section. And of course, all of these thematic, thematic sections come with a, a discussion event. So please look out for those. Fantastic. Um, the the other things that that um, uh, I think people will will want to see are well, I think people should see and and visit is the sound room, our audio room, and uh, our audio room is is great because again, uh, at the very many festivals in very many parts of the world, and. Again, in the pre-digital era, I would record these on the small, small audio cassettes. They've now been digitized and um, the audio room has a small selection of those. Some of them are great because the sound is ambient. So you can hear clearly everything and you can hear the context and you can. Anyway, have a look at those. You should definitely go to those. It's it's got um, you know Harry Belafonte who I recorded in Cuba because wow. His, wow. his his at the Havana Film Festival and who speaks eloquently about about um, um, uh, cultural détente as he was calling it at the time so so much people should look out also we're very pleased and honoured to have um, distinguished filmmakers such as. Um, the Black Audio, um, uh, Black Audio Film Collective's work, their first work, which I remember fondly. It was a tape slide production. It is now as a digital installation, and it's on the first floor of our, so do come to that. We are, <clears throat> we're hoping to have an event at some stage with John in situ, but of course he's busy at the moment in Venice, yeah. Um, we have the distinguished South African Chimarenga organisation, art organisation, who have produced a wall map for us, inspired by and based on on, on the archive. Um, so you will um, see their design. We're very pleased and honoured also to have had Zineb Sidera design our poster. I must also mention. Um, uh, the other person who assisted with the curation of this exhibition, our the curator and artist, our Kanate. I think when people come to the archive, they will be able to get physical copy, free physical copy of the uh, catalogue. And so I must thank uh, very much um, people that I have collaborated in different ways over the years. The work of Oneka Igwe, the artist, who was um, somebody who came to our archive frequently to explore and to help and to know it. She's now a very distinguished arch- um, artist who is uh, showing her work around the world. And she has always been involved in archive and uses archive in her work. And she's been looking into the beginnings of Pan-Africanism in London. And that was one of the things that also brought her interest to the archive. And it's an example as well of how people come to the archive. She'll be exploring that political movement and its key figures here uh, uh, in in our archive, specifically the ways in which Figures such as Amy Ashwood Garvey, Catherine Dunham, Una Marson and Sylvia Winter also used music, poetry, dance and theatre to challenge imperialism. So she'll be uh, leading a workshop for black elders, sharing archive materials from our archive and other collections, um, as well as clips from her film. So there will be an opportunity to discuss the significance of this period for for issues today, issues that, are, uh, you know, that are around today.
0: Well, this archive really holds all of the experiences, you know, right back from your genesis of your love for film, like mm. throughout your whole career and all of those experiences along the way as a curator and as a programmer and all of the people that that joined you on that journey. And it really is a lifelong project. I know that the audience would join me in just thinking what a gift this is that you've shared with us, June. How do you hope that your imagined visitor, I'm thinking maybe a younger visitor, how do you hope that that this imagined visitor would be influenced by this amazing exhibition? I... I'm hoping
1: that, I mean, a younger visitor is most probably somebody who's grown up within the uh, digital age. Yes. And the thing is, there are so many things, and I was having a conversation with some people recently who've told me about how much stuff they've thrown away or that they believed wasn't of use, wasn't important, because they're old and because they were very physical, that they've thrown away, that they wish they hadn't. Because you don't know how uh, the world is going to develop. You don't know how things are going to develop. You can only go with your own instinct of what you think is important to keep. And, um, of course, it's true. uh, Technology will change things, all sorts of things to happen in the world and in uh, the future of the world, and in the future of our existence, will change things. But if you have an instinct that something is particularly important to you or is particularly valuable or has played a significant role in, in some way, try if you can. And I say if you can because sometimes it takes over your life and your house and your son's bedroom. and. <laughs> very costly in terms of storage Um, try to to keep things that you think and that you feel um, you know are significant in some way you know you should actually consider before you throw them out or Mm -hmm. or when you engage with them how you would like to pass them on to the next generation
0: absolutely well that feels like a perfect thought to end on so thank you so much and i know that we're all going to be down enjoying it before it closes in june so thank you
1: thank you thank you for staying with my rambling
0: (laughs) (laughs) it was an absolute pleasure